If you don't have a Bible this morning, raise your hand. Uh, one of the ushers would love to uh, give you one if you, so you can read along. Like I said, we're going to be in Ruth chapter 3. Uh, and before I do that, I just want to highlight a couple things um, in addition to the newcomer stuff. One is we're really making a big push for our VBS program. This is our Vacation Bible School program that we do every year, and it's one of our largest attended events. We've got uh, close to, I think every year we've had over 100 kids attend it. Uh, right now, Jim Mathias, who's one of our artists at church, on church, uh, he's, he's developed a great, he's painting this amazing backdrop, which will be up in several weeks, uh, of kind of a jungle theme that we put up for the kids. We put a lot of effort and time and energy into this program, and we're looking for you to do two things. One is, if you have kids that you'd like them attend, uh, we want you to sign up. And then two is if you want to volunteer. We're looking for volunteers to help out. And you can sign up two ways. One is uh, online. If you go to sbctrucky.com, on the front page is a picture for our VBS. You click it, and it'll lead you to a link that will say sign up to volunteer or sign up your kids. And we recognize there's a couple of you, maybe like two or three, uh, that don't use digital devices. And if that's you, we have uh, the high-tech option at the uh, info booth, which is a pad of paper and a pencil, and uh, you can sign up that way as well, your kids or, um, or for volunteering. And you don't have to teach. Uh, if you're not a teacher, that's okay. We've got one guy. He's, he's actually volunteering for security. He's going to walk around the campus, make sure kids don't dart out of their classrooms into the parking lot, and make sure that people don't dart through here in their cars in the parking lot and things like that. And he actually is planning on getting a big yellow vest to wear during VBS because he wants to stand out and show everyone how cool he is in his big neon <laughs> Uh, deal. So uh, we're looking for volunteers and help. Again, it's, it's an amazing event for us, and the, the kids who come really enjoy it. Parents uh, love having their kids here, and we want to create that great, safe environment. So please encourage you to sign up for that. And then um, this morning, we have a tradition that we've done for as long as I can remember, even before I was here, and that is we honor our eighth grade and our, uh, our seniors who are graduating. So those kids who are moving from 8th to ninth grade, and then those kids who are graduating from high school, we, we give them a couple gifts. And so I'm going to invite our youth pastor uh, up, and he's going to introduce some of the kids and the gifts that we're giving them. So if you would give John uh, a good, warm welcome. We love John. And uh, <clears throat> just for this Sunday, he shaved his Taliban beard, so uh, he would look so good. But this is John. <laughs> Um, Castro. Wow. Jesus would be better, but I guess Taliban works. Um, good morning. Let's do this. Um, let's have high schoolers, if you are graduating, if you can come stand on this side, and then let's have middle schoolers, if you're going from 8th to ninth grade, if you could stand on this side. Uh, come on up. Make things nice and awkward for you. Uh, we do have a bunch of kids who can't be here. They will get their gifts eventually. Uh, but I've been here on staff uh, up to, I think it's been about six, six and a half years on staff. And uh, I've learned a lot over time. And uh, how not to do things and how to do things. And I think it would be good to share just one quick story of when I, my first trip to Morro Bay, which is like a beach trip we do for our high schoolers. It's like a five-day retreat uh, to get away, study the Bible, go to the beach, surf, dunes, that kind of stuff. And uh, one day we went to a park, first time being youth pastor, first like major trip. And so we're at this park, this guy, huge field, there's a playground, kids are playing in the playground, kids are on the basketball court, and a group of us are on the grass, and there's a huge field. And lining the field is a bunch of huge, long trees. And uh, so I'm hanging out, talking to some of my leaders and kids. And then off in the distance, you can see in your peripheral a tree that's just swaying in the wind. At least, I thought it was the wind. And so this tree was probably 50 feet high. And so you see this tree is going like this, but eventually it starts going like this. And I'm like, whoa, that random tree is coming out. This whole row is just swaying way over, and it's going further, closer to the ground. I'm like, what's going on? I look in the distance, and what happened is Gabe Dero 
climb 30 feet up in this tiny skinny tree, hanging from it, and see if he could bend it 30 feet down to the ground. I'm like, oh my goodness, it's my first trip, my kid's going to get paralyzed, what's going on? And it set the tone for youth ministry. <laughs> and I do pride myself on being uh, very aware of safety, but still having fun. And uh, I've gotten better with that over time, especially, but there's, after ER visits of kids doing stuff and showing up, I'm like, what? what What? were you thinking? Why would you dive in a shallow pool head first? Like, um, there's so many good stories of so much fun and excitement, and, but also the other side, too, of really deep conversations um, about Jesus, about faith, about what does it mean to live in a broken world, uh, but still have the hope of Jesus, of of doubts about faith, uh, is God even real? Uh, what does it mean to live for Jesus? Um, or just going through like sorrows and pains uh, of loss, loneliness. And so I think my job has been, one, to support kids and try to be here a part of their lives, to love them, care for them, instruct, but also as an advocate for parents. Um, I've really wanted to uh, support and be a resource uh, in my limited young knowledge uh, but we have the greatest knowledge and the greatest uh, teaching we can have, which is from Jesus, from Scripture. And so we have always been about, man, uh, Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, training in righteousness. And that has been the center of, like, what does it mean to see how the gospel fits in every new situation? The gospel isn't just simply how you get saved, how you get saved from something, but you being saved to something. Um, you are called to a new life, to a purpose, uh, to a family. Uh, to a mission that God calls you to, and teaching kids to find their identity in Christ first before anything else. And so I just want to give some encouragement to middle schoolers. Where are they all? They're all at the beach probably hanging out. Uh, what's really cool for you guys is you get to set the tone. Now you're going to high school, and you have a choice uh, that you can have major impact on kids around you, that you can be leaders who point people to Jesus through how you live your life, of how you do school, how you do relationships, how you interact with your parents. You get to represent and be that leadership in high school. Yeah, you're at the bottom of the totem pole, but also you have massive potential uh, of having influence and showing even older kids in high school, this is what it means to live a life of wisdom, to follow Jesus well, and through your life and decisions. And for College, good luck. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, this is a time of celebration and fun, but also for me it's like a time of almost sorrow. Of Yes, it's awesome to see mature and grow, but it also means like moving on and lots of move out of the area. They're not part of high school ministry. And this is like one of the toughest times for me. And uh, yeah, it's hard. Because you... And you learn to, <clears throat> to love kids, be part of their lives, see them grow and mature. Um, and there's stories I can tell about these kids. Um, but there's so many cool things that have happened in seeing maturity and seeing, like, I'll pick one out. Jack just got saved recently. It's pretty cool. Seeing him uh, get baptized. See some of these kids who have stepped up as leaders, some who have come on mission trips, who have served in Mexico, in the Dominican Republic, um, uh, who served in the community. Uh, these kids have been, um, man, like my friends, too. And so whenever I want to hang out or do something, uh, my first inclination is not to call an adult. It's to call kids. <laughs> what are you doing today? Let's go do something. Um, but I just wanted to read uh, this passage from Romans, actually for both groups. And uh, I love how it has headings in Romans 12 has this heading for this passage, Marks of a True Christian. And so I want to encourage you guys with this passage that you would uh, line your lives up with what Paul says in Romans. So this is Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be lazy, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. 
Rejoice, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of others, and show hospitality. Bless those who hurt you, bless those who curse you, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another, do not be prideful, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one with evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for his written vengeance is mine. I will repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not... Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so my encouragement is that you take that passage. That is how you guys are called to live, uh, to do good, to show hospitality, to care for those who are forgotten, uh, to love like Jesus loves. Um, And by doing so, you have a major impact on people. Um, And so what we like to do is uh, give a gift to uh, you guys, So middle school, every year they get their own Bible. Uh, And so the idea is like through high school, you're using that Bible that's given to you. It is really cool seeing kids who have graduated. They probably, some of them have their Bible here that they got when they graduate from middle school. And then for high school, um, they get a devotional uh, by Paul Tripp. And it is an awesome daily devotional. But on top of that, uh, we do give a grant for our graduates, you guys get a check from the church for $200. Uh, you can use that responsibly or not. Uh, but it's just a, a small uh, congratulations for the hard work you guys have done and working hard in school. And just like also knowing like we want Sierra Bible Church to always be at home. Uh, to feel like no matter what goes on, you can always call me, you can call the church, you can come here and feel like this is a family. And so... That said, at the end, you can pick up your gifts after the service. Um, But what I'd like to do is pray. Pray for this group in this new season, that they would represent Jesus well. Uh, Because we know in the marketplace of ideas, uh, there's so much uh, untruths that want to take your mind. And so scripture says, be aware of how Satan wants to rob you of your joy, rob you of your peace, and take you away from truth. Because we know the truth sets you free. And if you could take away truth, Satan can control your life. And so let's pray for this group. Father, we thank you for uh, this group here and these graduates. We pray for this next season of life, that you would just bless them, uh, that you would care for them. And in this uh, new season, that they we seek wisdom, they would seek knowledge, they would seek understanding, uh, that they would be able to rightly discern what is good, what is profitable, what is right, and that they will be quick to recognize uh, where there is evil, where there is wrong, where there is untruths, where things are false, and that they would choose uh, the path that is good, that is righteous, that they would be holy as you have called us to be holy. And I just pray for blessing on them, that you would just bring immense uh, joy and peace in this new season of life, but also direction that they would know uh, the steps you have for them, that they would be faithful in following you because you are God who is so good. Amen. One more thing before they sit down is, if you are uh, one of our leaders in middle school or high school, that you've been a part of these kids' life, if you can stand up right now, if anyone's here, stand up right now so we can recognize you. Yeah, round of applause. It's not just me, but obviously uh, it takes a village. And thank you guys so much for your service and help. You can totally sit down, and you guys can finally sit down. But a round of applause for our graduates. Thank you. So I think hopefully you get a little bit of a picture of uh, the kind of heart that, that John has as he's leading our group of kids in that age group. I think he does a a tremendous job. He's a tremendous asset to our team. And the kids that uh, have, that know John uh, and have sat underneath his leadership, they know that he 
loves them. And so we're really thankful for John. If you could give John a round of applause for doing what he does. It's great. Um, So this morning we're going to continue in chapter 3. I told the first service, just for transparency's sake, uh, I was going to kind of do a a jump in hyperspace in chapter 3. We've been in this book that is considered one of the best pieces of literature, both secular and religious, ever written, one of the greatest love stories ever written. And so we've been taking several weeks to just walk through it. And I I said to the first service, we're going to make a big jump. We're going to cover all of chapter 3 and finish chapter 3 this morning. And uh, it became really apparent that that just wasn't going to happen. And so chapter 3 will have two parts. And uh, we're going to see this very interesting piece. I, I actually just as somebody who studies God's Word, have found chapter 3 to be one of the, the kind of funnest, most intriguing passages in all of the Bible. There's a great lesson here. And so I know some of you haven't been with us for a period of time, so let me just kind of squish this book in, into just a few moments here that, that this love story starts with a woman uh, who her and her husband Elimelech move out of Israel to a place called Moab, a place of false idol worship, a place of human sacrifice. And they move out of, out of what is known as God's house to this false worship kind of atmosphere. And the results are catastrophic. This gal's name is Naomi. She loses her husband. She loses two of her sons, both who are married. And after 10 years of barrenness, uh, Naomi moves back to Israel with Ruth, who the book is named after. And Ruth is a Moabite woman who finds herself now in, uh, in Bethlehem gleaning from the fields, which is literally taking the leftovers of the harvest that she can eat and feed her mother-in-law. And in, as she's in the field, she meets a man by the name of Boaz, a godly man, a man who worships Yahweh, a man who is kind to his workers. And we're going to see this morning a theme that I really, I've, I've kind of touched upon it over the last several weeks but I haven't made it a huge emphasis. The title of this morning's message is God's has said, or uh, the Hebrew word chesed, which literally means that our God is a covenant God. The God of Yahweh through Jesus Christ is a covenant God. And specifically when we talk of has said, it means uh, something about God's characteristics that are important for us to know this morning. Number one, that God is tremendously kind. In addition to kindness, the second part of has said is that he is very loyal, lovingly loyal. And so we see underneath this book, what we have is we have these common people, uh, a man who owns a field, a woman who's gleaning from the field, uh, a widow who is at home who's too old to probably work. And behind the scenes, God is orchestrating and moving everything together for these two individuals to find love. And what's amazing about God's kindness is we see And even though there's this catastrophe and this difficulty and this hardship in these individuals' lives, God is working behind the scenes, leading them towards the ultimate kindness and love that he can bring about. And in addition to that, for those of you who know the conclusion of the story, that that through this marriage between Ruth and the character Boaz will come a child. And from that child, through the heritage of that child, will come King David. And through King David, we will find our Messiah, Jesus Christ. This beautiful love story is written for us in this Old Testament passage to point us to the ultimate kindness in Jesus Christ. And so if you look at any commentators or any theologians, anybody who cares about really studying the Bible, they will tell you a major theme of Ruth is that God is kind and he's loyal in his love to his people. And we're seeing that in these individuals' lives. And so I want to take some time just talking about God's kindness and love. And before we do, uh, if, you're, if you're new this morning, we have a tradition because we love God's word. We find it to be uh, really the key that opens up all doors to life, especially ultimate life, eternal life in Jesus. We honor God's word by standing in the reading of it. So if you would honor that, if you're able to this morning, please stand with me as we read from Ruth chapter 3. Now, uh, last week <clears throat> and a little bit the week before, I said, I said that we could have titled uh, last week's message, Dating Tips by Boaz. And, uh, and we saw that there's some things that Boaz did in chapter 2 to just really kind of pour on uh, love towards Ruth. You can tell 
he feels a kind of attraction towards her. And I, I kind of just mentioned to some of the single guys that, that, that there's some things in chapter two that you could duplicate uh, to get a gal. Or if you're married, there's some things you could do to rekindle your love through Boaz. Now, ladies, as I read chapter three, I want you to know what we read here probably shouldn't be duplicated. Uh, and we'll see here why in a moment. Chapter three, verse one. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, this is Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be, may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, put on a cloak, go down to the threshing floor, but don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it, be, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it. He measured out six measures of barley, put it on her, and then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. So she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn about the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And Lord, I pray this morning you would settle the matter today in our hearts. Open us up, Lord, to your message of kindness and goodness unto us, that we in turn would share that kindness and goodness to others. We trust you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Okay, <clears throat> this is really incredible. You have a, a backdrop here of Naomi who now step into her shoes again for a moment. Naomi is the mother-in-law who has lost her husband and has lost her two children. She's older in age. She's not old. In, she, she's, so, she's so aged that she's not in the field working along with Ruth. So she probably has some kind of handicap that is not allowing her to work in the field. And she has told Ruth to go into the field to pull the leftovers from the field, which was written by God's law that she could do that so she could provide for herself and provide for her mother-in-law. And so all of a sudden, Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth, hears that she's been in the fields of Boaz and that Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. And the kinsman redeemer, what's interesting about the kinsman redeemer is in biblical tradition, if you were married and, and the wife lost her husband and the husband died, the brother or a near relative would become what is called the kinsman redeemer, and that the husband could marry the, the widowed wife so that the, the, the inheritance and the heritage of that family would continue so that the last name of that person wouldn't become extinct. Now, if I was the kinsman redeemer and I married a widow and we had a child, a firstborn, all of the inheritance would not go to me. It would go to the firstborn. And so he, he says, well, they recognize he's a kinsman redeemer. This, this is literally our opportunity to not have our family name go extinct. And we'll see in a moment, it looks as if Elimelech actually owns a field, and that field will actually now belong to that family if, if, only, if only Boaz will fall in love 
with Ruth. And so Ruth and Naomi, they plot. They, they scheme. They hear that Boaz, first of all, picture it now, okay? Boaz is an older gentleman. He's older than Ruth. You, you saw that here in the text. He says, I'm thankful you didn't go after the younger men. And he said, he, he's not only a little bit older, he has some money. He owns a field. And so they scheme together. And this is exactly, this is exactly what Naomi says in modern translation. We basically have to win over Boaz. This is what we're going to do. Uh, Ruth, you've been working in the fields all day. You have a little bit of perspiration about you. Let's bathe you. Okay, in a day where there are not showers or bathing, this is a big deal. Let's wash you. In addition, in addition to washing you, if you notice it, it says, let's put on some Chanel. Let's put some, let's put some perfume on you, and let's make you smell really good. And then in addition to that, let's put you in some good clothing. Okay, now, now Ruth, you got to win this guy over. You look good. You look beautiful. But we're not done scheming, are we? No, not done scheming. Now know this, okay? It's harvest time. It's a celebratory time because the harvest has come. This is kind of when the Israelites would really kind of just celebrate and get together and rejoice and sing. And it tells us that after Boaz has been in the field, he's been working a really long day, right? He's sweaty himself. He's achy probably from from working with the grain. The threshing floor was the place where they would literally throw the grain up into the air, smash it, and, and, and the, 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 the chaff, the leftover part of the wheat, would float away in the, the wind, and the grain would fall down. So he's been working hard all day. And after he's worked a long day, it says that he celebrates. And, and what he does is he has some wine, and he has some good food. I, I like to picture he's probably got a beautiful lamb chop right there before him at the table. So he definitely was not a vegetarian. And he's, he's eating good food and he's drinking good wine. And Naomi says, now, here's the rest of our plan. You look good. You smell good. You've been prepped. Wait for Boaz to get a little bit of a buzz. Wait for Boaz to get enough food in his stomach. And then imagine now, Boaz has had some good wine. It tells us he's merry. That is biblical language for he's feeling pretty good because he has probably a little baseline good feeling from drinking some good wine. He lays down on his harvest on the threshing floor so he can protect the harvest. And as he's looking in the air, I picture him probably lying down. He's had good food. He's satisfied. And we know he's a man of God. We've been told that on multiple occasions. I, I picture him lying down, looking into the stars and thinking of the hesed of God, the, the goodness of God, the loving loyalty of God, that he is good towards his people and he blesses his people. I imagine that he's worshiping in that moment. And, and after a period of time, Boaz is lulled to a restful, quiet sleep. And Naomi says, once he's entered that restful sleep, when it's in the dark of night and no one can see you, sneak into the threshing floor uncover his feet. That is to literally take the covers away from the bottom of his feet, snuggle up to his toes, <clears throat> and then he will tell you what to do. Now, I, I, it, I, I said it in the first service, and I, I had said, now, if, if you are hearing this and you're thinking that it seems a little bit on the edge of, of promiscuity, a little, kinda, a little kind of, as one person yelled out in the, service, in, in the first service, a little kinky. It's actually meant to be read that way. This, this is not, this is not a, uh, I mean, she, <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of a funny way to say it. Ruth is not coming into the room looking to just have a good conversation with Boaz. She is seducing him in every way. In fact, what's really interesting about this text is from the rest of the, the passages, chapter 1 and chapter 2, remember, Ruth goes through a, a period of different names. In chapter 1, mostly, we see Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. The author is allowing us to know and see that Ruth is not an insider of Israel. She doesn't belong to the house of God. She uh, actually was known for her worship of the god Chemosh, which is the god that required human sacrifice. She was a pagan up until moving into Bethlehem. And so the author's allowing us to know there is some racial tension between Ruth and the rest of Israel. 
In addition to that, we're mentioned about Boaz, that he is a worthy man. And Boaz's name is mentioned in chapter 3. Take note that Boaz's name is not mentioned, neither is Ruth's name. They literally become the man and the woman. And I think that is because, in a sense, this passage is cloud, clouded in, in darkness. It's, it's meant to kind of almost feel like God is leaving them on their own, almost as if God is saying, like, like I'm going to work all things together for good for those who love me, but I can't exactly put my approval on this kind of, kind of a, a way of living life, right? No, no father would ever tell their daughter, if you're looking for a guy, wait till they've had a few drinks, sneak into their house, uncover their covers. Oh, but before you do that, make sure you put on some perfume. Any dads, would you do that? No, no, no. Yesterday, uh, my daughter had a, a dance recital. She's five years old, and I saw her on stage, and man, as she was dancing on stage, just seeing her beautiful little movement, she's just so dainty in every single way, and, and just gorgeous in every single way. I just thank God that God allowed me in, in having a baby girl, that we got lucky enough to have one girl out of all of the kids. We, we have four kids. Three of them are boys, and one is a girl, and, and the one girl is just in, and right now, at this age, she's perfect in every single way. She can't do anything wrong, and I know I'm waiting until she's 15 when that isn't true anymore. But I sat there and I thought, she's so beautiful. She's so gorgeous. And she's my little girl. And then I had this picture that one day that I would have to walk her down the aisle. And I got angry. And, and, uh, <clears throat> and I thought, no, never. She'll never, ever be married. Ever. Yeah. But I think the reality is, is that because Boaz is such a godly man, by, by God's grace... He doesn't take advantage of Ruth. By God's grace alone, by the fact that this man, it shows the resolution that, that Boaz has in not taking advantage of this woman. And I want us to just see God has said his kindness and loyalty towards us as Christians in a couple different ways. This passage here, actually, many theologians say, is an echo of Genesis chapter 2. If you would, if you want to read with me, look at Genesis chapter 2. And go to verse 18. Some of you will remember this remarkable passage in which we are shared by God how he brought man and woman together originally. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that's what its name was. And the man gave names to all of the livestock, to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field. But, but, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep, just like that of Boaz, to fall upon the man. And while he slept... He took one of his ribs and closed, up, closed it up in its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. The first thing I want you to see in regards to God's kindness is that, that God is tremendously good and loving and loyal in blessing his people with a helpmate. Basically, what I'm trying to say this morning is that marriage is a tremendous gift of God's kindness and good to, goodness to us in the church. Now, as I say that, I want to be careful because I recognize that God has allotted for certain individuals for them to be single probably for their whole lives. And God actually says this about marriage. It says, if you be married, you will have what? Who remembers what the passage says? Much trouble. Anyone who's been married for any length of time, you know that's to be true. In fact, a couple came up to me uh, after the service, and they said, you know, in marriage, there's three rings, the engagement ring, the wedding ring, and the suffering. <laughs> Stupid, cheesy joke. If you've been married, you know that in marriage, God uses marriage as the ultimate sanctifier. It is, it is a crucible in which God molds you, 
shapes you and transforms you into his image. In fact, Sinclair Ferguson says this about Adam and Eve. He says, Eve was the one companion that was fully suited to him, Adam, who would turn the not good of his being alone into the very good of a new covenant relationship in which he would discover at a new depth what it meant to be the image of God, sharing now a world of intimate fellowship with another who shares his nature. See, God allows in marriage, he helps us grasp a bigger picture of who the Lord is. There are giftings that my wife has that I don't have that give me a better image of God. There are things even in the opposite sex, such as my daughter, that God shows me that I don't possess. These things help us reflect the goodness of God. And this is important because because we live in a culture that does not lift up and edify the goodness and the sanctity of what God has said is in marriage. We now live in a culture that statistically it tells us that if we get married at all, we're waiting until our late 30s to do so, and we're waiting even longer to have children, and we're putting it off to the point where in our culture now, it may be much like in Europe that marriage just is not valued the way that it is. And so I would say as Christians, in order to show the goodness of God, one of the greatest tools of evangelism that we have is to elevate marriage to the status that God elevates marriage. And we know this to be true because in Ephesians chapter 5, God specifically tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage is a reflection of the gospel and that you and I become, we become married to the Lord. In fact, it's interesting as you read this story, it's meant to, to be uh, read kind of, kind of like a movie where you see, and all of us have seen these kind of romance movies, right, where, where the guy... Uh, starts kind of getting attracted to the girl and the girl's really not interested at first and then she becomes interested and then it looks like they're, they're going to get married. It looks like they're going to, uh, at the end of the movie, come together only for there to be some kind of problem involved and, and then, nope, it's not going to happen. And then another guy kind of sneaks in. It looks like she's going to end up with another guy and all of the ladies are like, no, don't let it be so. And all the guys are like, I'm watching this for you, babe. And then the, the story like progresses forward and then ultimately, we know that, it, that they end up getting married. Uh, uh, the analogy I used, the picture I used this morning, and some of you will relate to it, some of you won't, is the show Friends, which is a show I grew up watching. Right at the very end, during Friends for so many seasons, it's, is Ross and Rachel going to get together? They are, and then they're not, and then they are, and then they're not. And those of you who haven't seen it, you're like, you're stupid. I can't believe you know this much about Friends. Um, and... And we know at the very end, just to give it away for you, you don't have to watch 20 hours or whatever it is on Netflix. At the very end, Ross and Rachel end up together, and the United States of America all rejoice that God is good. <clears throat> and this is kind of what we're meant to see here. Now, what, the reason I say that is because Ruth, Ruth has put herself out there, man. She, she, she recognizes that Boaz can redeem her. She sneaks into the room. She lays down at his feet, and the wind chill hits his feet. And what happens? He awakens, and the smell of perfume and the look of beauty is in his face. And he has this resolve, and he looks to her, and he says, he says, you know what? There's actually another redeemer that's closer to you than I. And now we're almost left. If you haven't read the story before, if you don't know the ending, you're meant as the reader to leave there and go, Boaz and Ruth, they're not going to end up together. Oh, no. What's going to happen? But Boaz's words echo for us. They, they point us to the radical truth of the church. There is a greater redeemer than I. There, and that is Jesus. Jesus for the church when we think about marriage and we think about relationship, we recognize the hesed through God that all of us in this room are granted the offer of eternal salvation and an eternal intimate relationship where loneliness and solitude and isolation and depression are offered to be removed from us that we would not find our joy in marriage to the world or marriage to what the Bible would call Moab, but marriage to Jesus Christ, that he is our greater redeemer. And so those of us in the marriage, we see it in, in a particular light. But even if you're not married, you're meant to see that marriage to Jesus Christ, covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, will give you the satisfaction of your soul that you're longing for and that you're desiring for. And so she has this, this offer to her now of, oh my gosh, I might marry Boaz, but maybe there's someone else. So all that to be said, you and I should hold marriage to a high level. In fact, Years ago, I read in um, one of my commentaries, and I wrote it down, and, 
on my window in the office when I was in one of the smaller offices in the back. And, and it said this. It literally just said that the Christians in the first century had an impact on the Roman Empire because of their chastity and sex and their high value of marriage. Because Rome was a lot like America. Marriage was not something that was, was celebrated. But within Christianity, the Christians celebrated it. Sexual sanctity between a man and a woman in the marriage bed and a wife and a husband radically committed just to one another. And the evangelistic uh, kind of impact from that, it just rattled people that that was something that they were doing. And it made Jesus more attractive. So if you're married this morning, can I, just, can, can I just tell you, you should celebrate that and you should be thankful for that. If you're a husband this morning, would you look at your wife and just say, thank you for loving me anyway? Yeah? Uh, and wife, you can look over and say, you can look over at your husband and say to your husband, I'm the best thing that ever happened to you. <clears throat> and if you're single this morning, look, look somewhere, find somebody sit down. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I'm just trying to give you an opportunity. Um, let me show you the Hesed and Ruth. That'll be mainly what we tackle this morning is just the goodness we see of God and Ruth, the loving kindness and loyalty we see of God and Ruth. First of all, here's number one. Ruth has shown a tremendous amount of great love and loyalty, a tremendous amount of love and loyalty. First of all, we see her tremendous love and loyalty to Naomi. This is her mother-in-law, and she's sticking it through. She moved from Moab to Israel. In addition to that, she has now made a proclamation that she's going to worship Jesus, that she's going to worship Yahweh. And we see through this love and loyalty, she comes to this place of the threshing floor. Now, the threshing floor was known as a place of giving and sacrifice, where you, you are giving back unto the Lord. She lays her life down at Boaz's feet, and she uses some very interesting language. If you remember, in chapter 2, when Boaz meets Ruth, he says, I have seen that you have found refuge, that you seek refuge in God. Do you remember that? Chapter 2, Boaz says, I recognize something about you, and that's that you are, the words that, that, are liter, that it literally means is that you are hiding yourself in God. You're literally placing yourself in the presence of God, seeking God's protection. And what's really interesting is that Ruth uses the same language when she's at the feet of Boaz, and she says, would you take your cloak and would you give me refuge? Would you cover me? What she's essentially saying is, would you become the answered prayer in which you prayed for me in chapter two? Would you be my refuge? Would you be my hiding place? And she's offering unto Boaz her life as a sacrifice unto Boaz to live with him, to serve him, and to love him. And likewise, we also must place ourselves at the feet of Jesus as a living sacrifice. That is our job as Christians. When we see the, the hesed of God, the goodness of God, we place ourselves at his feet and we say, God, would you give me refuge in yourself? Would you hide me in your identity? And, and then we would literally say to him, may my life be, would it be to you a living sacrifice? Romans 12.1 says this, I appeal to you, church, that by the mercies of God that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You, when you offer your life to Jesus, when you give your life to Jesus, you're saying, I'm no longer going to try to live life alone in solitude, but in relationship to God, and I'm going to do it in a way that is worshipful to him. So uh, I've shared with you guys, I've, you know, I'm a pretty open person, and I've shared over the years that by nature, I'm an introvert, which doesn't mean I can't look like an extrovert. Right? I, I can handle people, but only in chunks of time. So um, like I can only love you in public for, for so long. You do it for long enough, and, and then I don't like you anymore. And, um, and so I try to pace my time out as a pastor that's around people all the time and ministering. I, I try to be mindful of this for my own health and well-being. And so yesterday, which was a Saturday, uh, we had two birthday parties to go to. And I knew after having two birthday parties with a lot of kids, so not only is it a birthday party, it's a birthday party with kids. And so if you're an extrovert, that's like a slow death. It's just like, you can only do it for so long and be like, I love you, I love you. I'm like, okay, time to go home, right? And, uh, 
And so as I'm, I'm at these birthday parties, I'm mindful that, that today's Sunday, so that would be tomorrow, which was yesterday. Okay, I'm going to be around my church family, and i got to pace myself out. And then after the birthday parties, we had, like I said earlier, my daughter's recital. And, and so I knew, okay, I'm going to be around people at the recital. And, and so after the recital, my daughter has become really close friends uh, with, with another family, and they had like, uh, like 10 of them there. And so we're, we're mingling with them. And my wife comes to me and she says to me, she says, they want us to all go to dinner with them. <laughs> to which I said, no. <laughs> and so, so she says, we're, we're going. We got to go hang out with them. And so we're packing up the kids. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm doing this with my head. And she says, this is what my wife says to me. She says, you remember last week when you preached to our church, the next steps? And in the next steps last week, one of the next steps I gave you was to invite somebody who wasn't a Christian to dinner and to hang out with them and be in relationship with them and share the gospel with them. So this is after. She says, do you remember what you told the church to do last week? And she says this. I'm not kidding you. These were her exact words. I love you, and so I'm holding you accountable to do what you've told your church to do. Um, I said something uh, probably not really nice, and then I got in the car, and we went to dinner. There was like 20 of us. And it was chaos. And, and I had a tremendous conversation with a guy. Uh, he, he actually works full-time for Tony Robbins and helps put on events for Tony Robbins. And we had a conversation about the gospel and about Jesus and who Jesus is. And afterwards, uh, the, one of the couples came to me and they said, thank you so much for bringing us together. In fact, we've been, we've been attempting, she said, we've been attempting with my daughter to try to come to church on a Sunday morning because, you know, we're not, real, we're not really like Christians, and we, we're not really religious, uh, but, but we, um, we, we feel like we need God or something, and so we actually tried to come last week, and my daughter had a panic attack, she said. They couldn't make it in the building. And, and all that to be said, we put ourselves out there as living sacrifices. I put myself out there as a living sacrifice, which is tough to do, and God honored it and used it. After the message this morning, a couple people shared with me. One said, one couple in the church said to me, uh, actually, you know, you gave that call out last week to invite non-Christians uh, to come to our house. And she said, we did. She said, it was really out of the box for me, very uncomfortable, but we invited our neighbors over and we were hanging out and we were having a really good time. And uh, she said, I said, well, how did it go? She said, really good up until the end when they said, okay, we're going to go home now and watch pornography. And so here's this, here's this Christian couple with a non-Christian couple, and the non-Christian couple's open enough to go, well, hey, this is what we're going to do. And she said, I, I sat there and went, okay. okay. And, uh, and as a pastor who cares about people who don't know Jesus, I rejoiced. Because this is exactly what Jesus did. He sat with the sinners. He sat with the tax collectors. He made, he made it a priority to sit and have awkward conversations with people who don't know Jesus, that they would come to know Jesus. And then in the conversation later, she said, they shared about how someone in their family was sick and dying, and they had an opportunity to talk to them about the goodness of God in it. Uh, and then this morning, a gentleman came to me. He said, you know, I haven't been working a whole lot. I've got a medical condition. He said, I've actually been living on basically beans, rice, and tuna for the last couple months. He says, I, I literally spend $20 a week on food. That's his budget. And he said, uh, so, and God put on my heart to invite this, this gal over to my house to feed her uh, after you shared your message last week. And she, he said to me, he said, you know what, man, I sat there at the message when you were talking about inviting people over, and I was like, what, what am I going to feed someone? I'm going to invite them over to my house. And I'm going to give them beans and rice in Jesus' name. Like, thanks for coming. Here's your beans. And he said to me, he said, man, I had, I had $37 in my bank account, 37 bucks in my bank account, and I felt like I needed to do it, so I invited her over. I took that 30 bucks. I fed her. She enjoyed the meal. We had a good conversation about, about Jesus. She actually was going to come to church today, but she has some family in town, and so she wants to come next week. She's interested in coming. And he said, when I spent that $30, he, he told me, he said, it left my, left my bank account with $7 in the account. And I said, okay, well, I honored you, Lord. He said, I'm, I kid you not, Jesse said, the next day, someone sent a PayPal payment of $400 into my bank account, and I have no idea who did it. They're not in my contact list. I don't know. I called my mom. I called my dad. Nobody knows that I'm going through this stuff. And somehow, some way, through God's kindness, his, his said, I got an extra 400 bucks in my bank account. All that to be said, when you... When you lay your life out as a sacrifice for God and you do things in the name of Jesus, Jesus honors those things. One of the things that we see in Ruth, I'll mention this as, as number two, she, she not only is humble, 
and acting as, as someone who's willing to lay her life down as an act, actual sacrificial life unto God, she actually, she actually embodies for us what it takes as Christians to be people of great faith and to step out in great boldness. Now, I gotta be careful here, right? I, I don't think that this is something that you are to imitate, ladies. This isn't like, well, Jesse said, step out in faith, and so I gotta dress really risque and see what kind of guy I can draw to myself. Bad idea. Um, but I do think that God does require of us as Christians to step out in faith. What, what, one uh, part of a movement that we're part of, they say uh, that we're to, to take uh, faith-filled risks. In fact, there's a gentleman by the name of William Carey. Anybody uh, familiar with William Carey? William Carey, in 1761, the year 1761, he basically started what is known as the modern missionary movement. And he's accomplished some great things for God. He says this, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Can anyone say amen to that? Just make me feel good about myself. Um, what, what this literally means is that, that as Christians, we need to start praying for boldness. We need to pray that God would empower us, that we would truly be on mission for God. So let me just, let me just meddle just a little bit with you. How many of you pray for boldness? Just, just one. Okay, two. It, I don't, and I'm not, I didn't expect hands to be raised, kind of, you know, I didn't mean for you to put yourself out there, but Courtney, I appreciate that you're more righteous than everybody else. Um, no, just, um, so I, I don't think we pray for boldness because we don't need it, because we're not really practicing it. We, we're basically told in our culture to keep your faith to yourself to kind of segment it, put it in a compartment. What you do on Sunday is what you do on Sunday, and then what you do in the week is what you do in the week. And it'd be, some of us, it might be hard-pressed for anyone, even for us, for them to know that, that we're Christians, that our friends and our coworkers even know that we're Christians. Maybe they know you go to church, but it's just faith is something that sits on the sideline. And I kind of want to, what I want to do is I want to sell you on this reality that really what we should be praying for is boldness. If you remember... Uh, in Acts, when the church was just thriving and blossoming and growing, it was because of their boldness. Listen to Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now it says, when they saw, that is those who don't know Jesus, those who weren't Christians, those who were outside of the faith. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. Let me just stop there for a moment. What the text just said was that you had people who weren't Christians who were witnessing people who were Christians, and what the people who weren't Christians noticed about the people who were Christians is that they were uneducated and that they were common. Now, how many of you want people to know you by that? Essentially, what the text says is we noticed they didn't go to school, they don't know how to spell, they don't know how to talk real good. They have all kinds of issues that, that in their educated system. But then as the text goes on, it says they were astonished and they recognized that even though they were uneducated, that they had been with Jesus. That's the number one thing that stood out to them, that they were bold in sharing their faith, not because they had a PhD, not because they went to school and they were educated, but because they had actually sat at the feet of Jesus and they experienced the hesed of Jesus and the goodness of Jesus, and they couldn't help but go outside of the four walls of the church and start sharing the goodness of Jesus with those who didn't know the goodness of Jesus. And I'm going to tell you this morning that if you want boldness that's going to impact people in your life, if you want real change that's going to impact people in your life, you first of all have to find yourself at the feet of Jesus. You've got to uncover the feet of Jesus, worship Jesus, lift your life up to him as a living sacrifice unto Jesus, and then through that, through sitting with him, you're going to have a bold faith that will proclaim the goodness of God, not because of your biblical education. Can I just free you for a moment? From, from saying, I can't share my faith because I don't know enough. Oh, you don't need to know a lot. You need to sit with Jesus. And then in verse 31 of Acts, it says, And when they had prayed, because they're sitting with Jesus, the place that they were at together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they continued to speak the word of God with, what do you guess? Boldness. Later in Acts chapter 28, as now the church has been adding thousands and thousands of people to it, they then went proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ 
with all boldness and without hindrance. Okay, now, can, I, I've said it before, and I probably will, will be relentless in this. It is our job as a church to proclaim the hesed of Jesus Christ to a community of people who do not know the hesed of Jesus Christ. And that we're going to do everything that we can to not just be a church for church people, but to be a church for people who don't know Jesus, that they will come and experience and know Jesus here. You know what I'm saying? You know how that's going to happen? Okay, I can't be the only one who steps out of my, uh, my zone of comfortability to go have dinner with 20 people who don't know Jesus, even though I'm an introvert. I can't be the only one. I can only impact so many people. You have to buy into this reality that you are made for something greater, that you will find great satisfaction in sharing your faith with people who don't know Jesus. And we should find great satisfaction in seeing people who don't know Jesus starting to invade our church, not with their beliefs and their doctrines, but with their personalities and their hurts and their pains. Now, now the reason I'm, I got to push on this a little bit is because I know inevitably without a shadow of a doubt that, that it is our nature to get what we want, to get what we have, and to keep it, and to make sure that nobody else gets it. That, that's, just so we're really aware, that's the Tahoe way. Yeah? Hey, man, I, I moved to Tahoe so I could experience Tahoe, so there better not be any more Bay Area individuals coming and invading my Tahoe, right? What's the t-shirt say? I live where you vacation. And In essence, like, you you. You don't belong here. Come on. Some, some of you know what I'm talking about. I've lived here my entire life. It has, been, it has been a cultural thing in the Tahoe area that it's all about the local, and don't you dare allow anyone else from the outside to come in because, because well, this is my area. I got mine, and you keep yours over there in San Francisco. Somebody's at least being honest. Now, now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. That, that, that may work on a local level, but it doesn't work in the kingdom of God. It does not work in the kingdom of God. You know what? If, if you really want to step out in boldness, some of us in the room, I just got to start with find a new place to sit every week. So, somebody came to me. Somebody came to me. They, they normally come to uh, the, the uh, 8.30 service, and they came to the 10.30 service. This was last week. And I said, oh, hey, man, you came to the 10.30. He goes, yeah, we did. Someone's in my seat. <laughs> it's not your seat. <laughs> it's not your seat. It's a place to sit so that you can worship God and hearing the preaching of God's word. It's a place to be so you can experience the goodness of Jesus, the hesed of Jesus, so that then you would practice the hesed of Jesus. So here's the reality. If, if we're going to be a church that truly glorifies Jesus Christ, we have to be bold in sharing our faith. We have to let people know that Jesus loves them, and we have to invite people to come to church that they would experience the goodness of Jesus, and we have to give up our seats. You have to give up your seat, You've got to give up your place of, of, of position, your place of status, because Jesus is all about inviting the new and the outsider, the person who's on the fringe, the person who's outside of the border, the different race, the, the person that, that is poverty-stricken. God is saying, come to me, send me your weary, send me your broken, send me your hurting, and put them in a place of position and status. Bring them into the family of God. Treat them with a special kind of kindness. Now, now, I, I probably don't need to spend more time on this than I ought to, but I do believe that the church traditionally has done a very poor job making the church just for church people. You know how I know that? Anytime a church introduces change, the only people who whine about it are the people who've been here the longest. You want to know why it's, this is important? You've already been reached. It's time to reach more. And in order to do that, it will require faith-filled risk and change. It will always require change. And it will require you to step out in faith and do something you've never done before. And that's where God wants you, uncomfortable. And, I, and I'm just telling you from somebody who, who sits down at the feet of Jesus every single week, and I see God and I say, God, I want to be a part of kingdom growth. 
and I want to see people come to you. What would you require of me? And, and, and the Lord constantly challenges me and says, Jesse, you're going to have to go places other people aren't willing to go. And here's the beautiful thing. Some of them will follow, and then more people will be added to the kingdom of God, and your peace and your satisfaction will not be, not be rested and assured in people's opinions, but in being obedient to what God has called me to do through his word. Are some of you with me this morning? Are some of you willing to, to step out and change something? Because church, church is for you, but it isn't for you. And what I mean by that is that we care about discipling you, we care about loving you, but if we're going to reach other people, if we're going to reach people who've never been reached before, then we might have to try to do some different things. But you know what will never change? The preaching and the emphasis on the Word of God will never change. And the resolve to put the focus on Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who died on behalf of our sins, the exclusivity of Jesus unto salvation. It's, like, it's kind of like this. We want people to be offended for the right reasons, but not the wrong reasons. When somebody comes to church, if we're going to offend you because we believe in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that's fine. But if we're offending you because, because we haven't done a good enough job making sure there's somewhere for you to park, I even know of some churches that literally save certain rows for visitors to say, you know, you're important to us. Now, it's obviously not the front row. <laughs> it takes a bold person to come sit up front or to save a parking space for someone who's coming to church for the first time. My emphasis here is that, first of all, that God is lovingly kind to Ruth. He, he is bringing her from the outside, and man, he, he is blessing her socks off, and she is coming to a new, just awesome place. Now, remember where she was, man. She was across the border, and she was a foreigner, and now she's being brought into the family of God because of God's loving kindness, and because Boaz was a man who stepped out in faith. So we see God's kindness in Ruth, and next week, when we do part two, we'll see some of the hesed in Boaz in this, the goodness of God through Boaz. And so I've been doing this practice for the last several weeks, um, and it is purposeful. So some of you say, well, why is he doing this? I'm doing it because I, I want our church to know when you leave here, what, what are some expectations? And so here's the, here's the takeaway for the next steps. Number one, I want to encourage you to pray for boldness for you and for your church. So it's one thing for you to pray for yourself. God, this is basically what you put. God, give me the ability to share my faith in a way that isn't weird, but is unashamed. Give me the ability to invite somebody to the church, Lord, that's never been. Give me the ability to share with someone that I am a Christian and I stand for something that is biblical and true. Lord, give me the ability to try new things that I've never been unwilling to try before. Lord, would you, would you give me the boldness to even be rebuked? Would you rebuke me, Lord? That takes boldness. Would you tell me where my, my attitudes have been religious and not grace-filled? God, would you give me boldness? Would you pray for boldness and pray for our church as well? Pray for me. I want to be unapologetic but awesome and kind in sharing my faith, which leads to number two, practice has said this week. Who is it that's on the outside? Someone maybe that you feel you're having a hard time forgiving? Someone that you would never want to share your faith with because, boy, you just really don't like that person, if you're honest. Maybe you're married to that person. Maybe your child is that person. Who, who is it that you could practice his said with, which literally means to practice a kind of grace and a kindness and loyal love towards somebody specific this week? And then practice it and do it. And what's cool is since I've been doing this, it's been really neat because, as I shared earlier, people are coming up and they're sharing stories and they're saying, man, God is honoring my next step of faith. And so as you see these things each week, they may even be the same sometimes week to week because sometimes, sometimes practicing these things takes more than just a week, doesn't it? Anybody still working on prayer for like the last 15 years? It takes time. And so as the worship team comes up and we close uh, and singing, I want to invite you in our last song to literally just do this. Sing, of course, but, but take time to pray for boldness. Take time to think about who you can practice 
loving kindness with. And then maybe next week you'll have a few neat stories to share on how God has honored your steps of faith. Let's pray. Lord, <clears throat> we thank you that you have come from heaven down into the pages of the Bible through the word of God into our hearts to press us and to change us and to mold us and to shape us into your image. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be unashamed in our approach to you. I pray that you would help us to know the right balance between change and tradition even, Lord, that as we move forward in reaching people who don't know you, that we wouldn't lose who we are and our identity and our core values. But we do desire to be a church, Lord, that steps out in boldness in the area that allows people who don't know you to come to know you. And we're trusting you for that empowerment. We're trusting you for that change. And we're trusting you to build and heal relationships where needed, that we would practice the set. We thank you, Lord, for this time. And we trust you again for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand as we close in song?